As an independent producer, and more recently as president of Phantom 4, Kevin Turin has brought to life a number of enthralling films, including Arbitrage, 99 Homes, and All is Lost. He's now working on several new projects, including Miles, Assassination Nation, and the long-anticipated adaptation of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. Turin discussed the dynamic nature of deal-making in Hollywood, the primacy of passion in filmmaking, and the underappreciated power of listening. He also shared insights from his production work with legendary greats such as Richard Gere, Susan Sarandon, and Robert Redford, revealing the artistic tools needed to make a successful film in a notoriously competitive landscape. A film that doesn't work if it has integrity, but if you have a couple films where, like, you know, they're really, they're not good and they're not meant to be artful, I think it hurts you. I think you're going to have, if you have an actor who's getting on a phone knowing that their production needs to go smooth, that they're going to get the production value that they, you know, feel they're signing up for, and they look at the fact that you're, you know, you haven't been trying for quality or you've been, I mean, like, it, it hurts you severely. Please enjoy our conversation with Kevin Turin. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. you chose to become a producer? I kind of fell into it. I um, always loved movies. I wanted to be at one time a critic, wanted to be a writer, um, realized I couldn't write and um, you know figured was watching a lot of movies and I always kind of was looking at different producers body of work and I was like oh that's kind of what I want to be and um, you know, it took me kind of years to get there. So how did you get started in the industry? Everybody always seems to want to know, like, as if there's some miracle path, which we all know there isn't. But how did you get started? What was, like, the first couple of jobs and, and ways that you did it? I started off doing uh, coverage, which, um, I mean, it's basically you read scripts and you have to get, like, long synopsis of them and give your thoughts. Then I did some assistant work. Then um, I, um, from there, um, made a film, made a small film, and the investor ended up... Um, you know, you know, buying a couple uh, companies, and one was a um, primarily theatrical acquisitions for home entertainment company, and um, so I spent several years just buying finished films, um, three, three and a half years. What, what is acquisitions? What is the acquisitions process? I don't, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, how does that work? Because that's a pretty big thing that people are looking, uh, you know, into. It's um, acquiring films for, um, for this, it was North American theatrical and home video. Most of the time, you go to film festivals and buy films. Um, you know, the company I was at, we were kind of a mid to low level company. So, I mean, I remember I was at um, Sundance, and it was the year of Little Miss Sunshine. It was like first couple weeks doing this, and um, I just walked out of the movie. I was like, we're never going to buy this, and ended up buying a couple films that had, you know, decent enough actors that you know wouldn't have worked in the theaters. 
<laughs> it was not fun. It was, you know, there was that moment when you're like, oh, I went to school to make good movies and do something great. Then you're like, I'm buying really bad movies. <laughs> it was, uh, what would you say a film producer does? There are books written about this, and I don't think the books are even right. What would you say a film producer does? I think a producer could do, you know, it could be doing everything and also nothing. Um, unlike, no, too, and if you're doing nothing, I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's sometimes the best thing because you're not needed, which uh, means people have it handled. But um, it's one of those, you know, there's nothing tangible, but there's no, like, there's, I mean, there's no trade. I mean, you're not an accountant. You don't know how to work with numbers. It's kind of you're kind of putting all the pieces together. So essentially a producer, I mean, you get involved in whether it's from the script stage and development to, you know, attaching director, talent, putting the money together. You know, it could be all of those things or it could be something where um, somebody has everything packaged together and they're like, hey, do you want to come on and, like, help run this production? So, yeah, I mean, I've... And it goes from, I mean, I'm working on a film now where I'm involved in every, every aspect and um, from every casting decision to every script note and I'm working another film with a director who um, has it so handled that I've, if I were not on set, didn't do anything, you know, like the film would be just the same. He's got such a grasp on it that, so it kind of it's all, you know, different for each film. How do you evaluate the opportunities? For example, how do you evaluate whether to get involved in the project or not? Do you just say yes to everything, or is there a specific process for you? There's no specific process. You kind of um, go with past work, meeting the person, um, instincts. You know, you think that they have a real vision, they have something to say, you feel like that you kind of think to yourself, like, how much do they have on the line? How much are they willing to put in? And you kind of trust your own instinct and um, hopefully you're more right than wrong. There's really no real, there's no direct formula. Every time, like, you go into something thinking it's going to be one way, it never is. So, uh, like, for example, a first-time director comes in, a lot of people look at that and they're like, it's just impossible. What makes a first-time director grab your attention, because I'm sure you've worked with some, and say, that's the one, and I, I want to work with this guy, this is going to, or girl? how personal the story is to them, how, I mean, it's, it's really a judgment call. It's, um, you know, working with somebody and you just know, like, how detail-oriented they are, like, how much of a hold they have of the story, how, you know, how w they're willing to listen, you know, because I think every first-time director needs, you know, it's for doing anything, you need somebody who's been there before that you could, you know, and so many times you'll meet with people that you know are talented, you just know that, they're not going to listen to word of anything, and you're just like, life's too short, which, which often happens. But it really, it's just going with your gut and knowing that this person will do anything to make a good film. What do you find to be the key skills or um, advantages you know, to being a producer? What are those key things that we talked about that you find makes a producer great? I think making a producer great is having everybody calm around you and hiring, as I said, there's nothing really tangible. Like, I don't, I'm not an accountant. I'm not a, you know, I'm there, I mean, I'm not a screenwriter. Just tr putting together a really great group of people that could, um, you know, work together fluidly and, um, and have a good communication. And those in the audience that might be considering or thinking about going in, stepping into this industry, you know, what are some of the, 
Like, what's the advice you would give for how they should break in? What, where, where do they start? To be, if you want to be a producer? Yeah. I think any job you could get. I mean, like, I, um, I think any job you could get, I mean, like, there was a period where I wanted to be a producer, then I was buying movies, and somehow you just got to kind of work yourself and your situation to get where you want to be, but um, I would say read as many scripts as possible. Like, I remember I was just reading, like, I'd come home with like 20 scripts a weekend and read every one and take notes on them because it take I think like no matter how smart you are and no matter how what good I mean like I was an English major and I thought I had a great sense of story but it's a different medium it's the screenplay and I think it's in this you know it's, I mean, all stories are essentially the same but like just like to work in this format just reading as much as possible that's like my biggest advice over and over again. Because you're saying that reading, the more you read, the more you realize right away that like this doesn't work, this doesn't work, yeah. this doesn't work. And you could figure out why. Like I think you could, you could read a. I mean, an amazing script is an amazing script that anybody could tell. But like a script that can be, if you see potential in it, um, I think it. I mean, maybe for me, but I think it's probably generally for most people. It kind of took me a while to figure out like how I could express to this person why I think it could be better and why they could agree with me or not and pinpoint what exactly is wrong about it um, or what exactly needs you know, improvements in different areas. And um, I think like that, I mean, I think I'm much, I think like it took me several hundred scripts to be able to like have an intelligent conversation with somebody to, you know, for that. Does interning work? Totally. Explain a story you were telling me the other day. Um, I think, so there's this young, there's this intern who, um, father grew up with my um, my mother and he his father grew up with my mother and he called and my mom asked if we give him an internship and we said yes and um, he's 20 years old came out of the UK didn't know a person in the business hadn't read a screenplay before and um, he's incredibly bright um, we were all impressed with him and you know he's now when he graduated college I mean he has his first job and, um, and it was like, that was a relationship from like, my mom hasn't spoken to his father in 20 years. I think that like, through a social media world, through how everybody has like a, is a separation, one degree of separation away from like a job, of an internship. I mean, it's, you know, it seems to me like you're not paying. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, it's not really a big betting process. Um, great. Uh, so what is, and uh, this is a bad way of saying it, but what is an unsuccessful producer? What, what doesn't work? Because we talked about one thing that I think is really important here, and that is the trends. Following the trends of the marketplace never works. Um, doing things because something else worked before it never really works. Um, and I think the biggest sign of an unsuccessful or bad producer is that um, being on set is never as interesting as you think it is, and most of the time it's boring. And if you're doing your job well and things are going well, it's really boring. You have nothing to do. Um, and I think that, and like I said, because there's nothing tangible and there's no direct skill of being a producer, a lot of times, and like anybody could say they're a producer and if they have a credit, they'd be technically, that is their profession. Um, getting your, letting your ego in the way and just getting kind of like anxious and, um, Meddling. I think like your your job is to like solve problems, trust the people around you, and um, and like you know. And I often, so many times, see like producers just get in the way of themselves. So if you're sitting in the trailer as a producer and nobody shows up for a month, you did your job right. Completely. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that was just very interesting. <laughs> so what are some of the misconceptions about you know, breaking into the industry as a producer? Is, is, is there anything that's out there that people think that they should do? And really, that's just not, it's not an option. I think that there are so many ways in which you become a producer now, and depends. I think that you could make, if you believe, just, if you believe in your friend from you know, college or high school and they need a couple of dollars to put together a film and you put it together and you're a producer. And um, I mean, Beasts of the Southern Wild was a bunch of friends who lived in New Orleans and they put together a film and cobbled together for years. And, um, those guys made that film and they've continued to work with their friends and they've only worked with their friends and they're really great producers. So it's just, um, I think anybody can be a producer. I think that um, where I think it's risky in a bad way is that um, if you're in a situation where you kind of, you know, you eat what you kill, you're put in a situation where you, where if you have the opportunity, you like, you know, you're judged by the films you make and the choices you make. So if you're, if, you're doing a, if you're doing multiple jobs, let's say for a paycheck, you know, and, and the films don't turn out well, you're hurting your career. Because every time an actor looks at the producer, every time somebody, if you, you know, they're gonna say, oh, he worked in those films, and if they're not, if they don't have any integrity to them, it's gonna be harder, and they just know that, like, so it's kind of like, really work with people who believe in, or kind of work through the system and kind of, and, and work up, you know, gradually. But um, it's you know it's I, but I do think that like you really it is a job where you kind of are you're judged based on your decisions and so you're only as good as your last film or your last two films. <laughs> I, I think you could have a film that doesn't work if it has integrity, but if you have a couple films where you, like you know they're really they're not good and they're not meant to be artful, I think it hurts you. I think you're gonna have if you have an actor who's getting on a film knowing that their production needs to go smooth that they're gonna get the production value that they. You know, feel they're signing up for, and they look at the fact that you're, you know, you haven't been trying for quality, or you've been. I mean, like, it it hurts you severely. Yeah, and that's I why mean, it's tough when you're young, because like you know you have those decisions because everybody needs to, you know, make a living, and so it's that's where that's where it's like a catch twenty two. Like if you're gonna do something, just really like believe in it, and, like go rise or go down with the ship. But like you know, it's not worth like just doing it for like the paycheck because it's never that good anyway. It's almost like you don't want your career to break on a big movie early. You want to practice a ton and read as many scripts yeah. as you possibly can and know everything you could before you start really going. Because some people, you know what I mean? Totally, yeah. They just make a film right away and then yeah. all of a sudden they're judged by it. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Good or bad, yeah. No, no, fair enough. Um, so how do you evaluate the opportunities, like what qualities do you look for in the scripts themselves that make you say, this is, this is a home run, I wanna make this happen, you know? Unique, strong voices, characters that you find intriguing, whether you agree with their decisions or not, that they feel like singular. Um, and um, different themes at different, I mean, I was telling Bradley, like my partner, um, has three kids, I have two. And uh, we had all of these movies that we're developing and they're all about a father trying to be better. <laughs> and, and I was like, that we didn't realize till we were going through things of Mike. So I mean, like, without knowing, that was obviously a theme that was, um, you know, 
being a great father is a huge theme in my life, and without realizing it, we have three films we're developing that some in some form hit that theme. So things that are things that because I mean I think you could only really do a good job on things that are personal to you. Right. So that that kind of leads into what are the mistakes that first-time writers make? You know, oh, explaining too much. Right. I think it's too much exposition. I think, which is, which is, I think that's the, you know, if you have too much exposition, I think that's okay, because that's just being like almost protective, but like writing characters that they don't know, that are, I mean, writing characters that they have never experienced, don't have the life experience, they don't have the understanding of. I mean, there's exceptions. I mean, Orson Welles did Citizen Kane, or, you know, when he was 25 years old, and the character, for the most part, of it's, you know, you know, in the 70s, but um, I think it takes you through life, but I think like, and chasing the market. I think it's the worst thing that people could do is chase the market. Because by the time your script is done, the market will have changed and it's like whatever, like this weekend's um, split, which is a multiple personality thriller. There'll be like 10 of those that'll be written now. And you know, when one, it's so I think that's just like, it's a never win, it's never a winning formula. It's almost like because of the 10 or 15 personality scripts that are gonna come to yeah. you, it's like you should be doing a Western. Yeah, right? And when the horror comes out, yeah. You should be doing, you know, a romantic comedy. Yeah. Like technically, there's not a lot of romantic comedies right now. That's what you guys should be yeah. doing. You know what I mean? But it's how, that's how you have to think. Yeah, and write what you know till you're kind of always. I think always write what you know, but write what you know till you're like at the stage in your profession where you could adapt to different roles and different projects if that's what you want to do. If can you can you kind of give an example of a project that you undertook and you're like, this is going to be a home run, and then it was a home run. I mean, there's a scandal and results, you know, like we're not at the end of the day what they're supposed to be. But um, I think like Birth of a Nation was a film that um, I'd worked with Nate on arbitrage. And um, it was a film that there was no financial model because anything African-American, anything, um, you know, anything period with African-American had no value in terms of a film is traditionally financed through international sales. So it was an all equity film. Knowing Nate and knowing like who he was and just how determined he was, like I always knew that that film was going to be, you know, special and give him, you know, special. And um, he had such a strong point of view. He had never directed before, but um, he was a guy who was a all-American wrestling wrestler, a wrestling coach. Just everything he did, he gave 100% of. And and um, I just always knew that that film was going to. Um, you know, was going to work in a way that, like he said, it was. I just kind of trusted him, and um, you know, it was the highest-selling film by a lot of in the history of any film festival. But um, you know, scandal happened, and it, the results at the end of the day were not great. So that movie is is interesting because it's an all-equity play, which means that that someone is naked on seven to eight yeah. million dollars with no distribution intact, yeah. and you're going making the movie, and then you're going to a film festival and praying somebody buys it. If they don't buy it for anything, you lose all your money, and if they buy it for, as in your case, seventeen million dollars, you make a lot of money. So the question is, how did you raise that money? That um, that's true. There was no model for that film. Now there is. I think this film actually changed. You know the model forever, which is a great thing. Um, Nate, he was really that impactful and that powerful in a room. You kind of got a sense when you met him that like this guy was not going to fail. And um, and I didn't even do much. I mean, I basically just like he knew some people. I knew some people. I said just kind of you know you should get in a room with the guy, and he would fly the next day across the country and like just 
you know, piece to piece, put it together. And, um, but that was really like, that was probably the, less, the least selling I've ever had to do. Which is so interesting. Yeah, for the hardest. The traditional model. financing way, yeah. if you sent that around, they would just be like, pass, Oh, no, it, that, pass, that got about pass. 170 passes. Yeah, sure. I mean, everybody loved the script. Nobody would have, um, just because, you know, I mean, like, it's, um, I don't, you can't blame people because it is their own money, and if he didn't, the, there's no kind of middle class for that film. It was either, you know, $17.5 million or zero. Or a couple output deals, a couple underground. <laughs> How can the stories that we tell as filmmakers, uh, you know, change perspectives in lives you know does the industry still have that effect and, and what is it doing in your mind you know I think totally I think that um, I think film has been always a medium where you're able to kind of experience and learn something new I think it's um, you, I mean you see more examples in documentaries but look at a film like Moonlight I mean I mean that's an experience that most people never understood or knew about and now producing the film is like learning something new and I think that like that's a great thing I think you know films like often are able to like you know make a change and make a difference what do you say the role of the film festivals have now or do they really help in making something a success I know you did in Birth of a Nation but if an overall scenario is it still an important thing for oh, people to pay attention to Completely. It's where um, your film gets reviewed. It's where um, you get an audience. Whether it's a real audience, it's never a real. The audience is always a false gauge of what the real audience is, just because you have people in a town really excited to see movies, and people there's a frenzy to it. But um, it's where I mean, like the, the independent film world, and even the mainstream, you know, in, in all films now. I mean, it's like what plays used to be in the New York Times. Like, if you got a bad review, your play was, your play was um, compromised. Whereas before, now that everything's online, it's become more difficult than ever. I mean, you had, for example, like, I don't know, like the Ben Affleck film Live By Night that's out now that didn't get great reviews. Now that people could like point to a direct Rotten Tomato score without even reading reviews, like that film is, you know, really underperforming. Whereas before, people would just see it based on a trailer and curiosity and a good old-fashioned word of mouth. Now it just goes by so quickly. So when a film gets an incredible amount of attention at the film festival, that press leads into the release and helps with the sale price, you know, which could drive it up, which means the higher the sale price is, the more the distributor usually has to spend to, you know, break even and make money. Do you see, and I'm sure everybody in the crowd feels this way, that the industry is going towards huge blockbuster Fast and the Furious superhero films or small moonlights and Birth of a Nations over here. Is there a middle ground anymore? Is it going to continue to go that big? What's the future of the film particular industry? I don't know. I think that, um, I think that streaming, there's going to be... I don't think there's... A, I mean, I think that streaming is the way of the future and for so many films now, and I think that, like, my fear is that, like, you know, before you'd make a film and you would, um, people would talk about it. And I think the way that people talk about television and Netflix is, um, that's been how people have watched, people, the way that people have talked about television is it's just a newer, better way of watching it, been watching it for most. Whereas, like, with movies, like, that's not how people have watched movies, so I think it's gonna take time, but I think, like, there's gonna be a lot of films that are, going to be programmed that'll be forgotten a week later, but um, so it's kind of too early to tell. 
where the film market will go and like how much people are going to be interested, which is kind of a frightening thing. I think that um, I think that there's always going to be, and you see a couple coming a year, but like mid-range films, whether they're genre or whether they're you know not just prestige films that'll hit the marketplace. I think there's going to be more that there's more distributors for that now, like companies like STX, companies like Lionsgate. So I, I do I think that. Um, I think there's just going to be a lot more films coming out digitally. And I think it's going to be eventually very competitive. I think you'll have, they'll still have their $100 billion blockbusters every week as well. So it's going to be really like, is it a Netflix night or a movie night? So it's going to be, I think it's going to continue to get harder. Or a Hulu night. Or, a Hulu night. or an Amazon night. Amazon, yeah. <laughs> Um, how, marketing, does that go in, like when you, when you read a script, do you think about the marketing right off the bat, or how do you market these indie films, or even now the big films that you're going to be doing soon? I, um, I used to not think about, I still try not to think about the marketing, just be like, Let's, if it's good, people will see it. Um, but that's kind of a little bit foolish. Um, I think you have to kind of like vision, like, if this film turns out great, like, you know, like, what is, how are you going to get people to see it? So you definitely have to think about it, but, um, but you know, I try not to let it drive any decision. The blacklist. Do you use it? Does anyone use it? Is it just everybody talks about it, or is it real? No, it's very real. I think it helps. I mean, I have a film that was on the blacklist this year, and, um, and um, it just, I think it's a, you know, not to, bash on the industry, but it's a lot of people who kind of follow what other people say. So when a script's on the blacklist, like it's an easier thing for them to pitch and like it's been validated as good rather than I think people get burned a lot and people are a lot of, often scared to have their own opinion. So it's just like somebody could call their client up or say, oh, it was a blacklist script. So it technically does help in terms of packaging films. The agency part of the business. Love it, hate it, necessary. What's your necessary and um, Extremely necessary and important, and I, um, I, I actually do love that aspect of the business. I think it's important. I think that um, agencies are like producers as well. I think that they, um, they um, work really. They, I mean, like, there's a lot of bad to it, but I think the good is that they, um, you know, they're really good at packaging and getting their clients to read and um, and you know putting together a film, much the way similar to what a producer does. Um, how, how to pick a winner? You know, is there any specific uh, advice you can give on how to how to pick a winner, or there's just not really much to it? It's just to, so when you when you <laughs> in ones that you picked that you didn't work out. Oh yeah. You just learn from the experience. Yeah, you learn from each one, and you're never you're never. I mean, like, I feel like no. You, every time you think something could be something, it's always different, and never is what you think. Um, so I mean, just that's one of the best scripts I've ever been a part of that I loved. Um, uh, we en ended up in, turning out to be a, not a great movie. So it's like, and I was like, that film I was like, confident was going to work, and it totally did. So it's like, you just you're you know, it's just like you know, hopefully you're more right than you're wrong. So you continue to work. <laughs> what What do you think makes the story last through the ages? We were talking about that earlier today too. I think just. Themes that are timeless, characters that are memorable. I think that um, I think it's really a lot harder now 
um, than it's ever been because there's just so much content and um, you know so many stories have been told and we've so many things are regurgitations of other things that you really have to like do something new and different and kind of um, it has to be that special or else like you know it's forgotten like it never existed and which is a really depressing that's the thing like you fear most when you work on a film you're like is this film going to be totally forgotten all this time that I've put in like you know like like it never happened and that's um you just got to work hard to make sure that <laughs> that's not the case. And many times it will be, and hopefully a couple times it's not. Uh, it, what, what, give us one of your maybe craziest stories uh, based around, because you have a lot of crazy stories, which I really like. <laughs> but if you had one or two that you had to throw out there in, in the filmmaking process, what would be one that comes to mind? Um, without names, I was making this without film. Names, of course. And, um, <laughs> And um, we, um, we had, the money was having an issue and it was about two weeks away from shooting and we had to push to film. And um, I knew that it was gonna be a disaster. And um, the lead actor was um, on a bit of a uh, drug bender for a couple of days. And, um, and I was like, how am I gonna get out of this one? And um, I figured I had to, Figure, I, figure, I was like, how am I going to do this one? Because, I mean, like, the truth is the money's not there. I can't really tell the truth. That could have the whole thing go down. Um, so I'm in a really tough spot. So I basically, um, you know, the agents and manager of that person knew that, the, that he had um, some issues um, with substances. So I told them that we needed to do the drug test immediately for insurance, else the film had to get delayed. And, um, and they're like, well, we can't do that now. I'm like, oh, then we have to delay the film. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is gonna, everything's gonna go down. <laughs> and, um, and, I bought, and, I, and I got that week. <laughs> well, there you go, that's indie filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you describe to us a, a typical day? You know, you get up and you go right into development meetings, or how does it, how do, how do you keep all this organized? There's so many projects, there's so much going on. How do you keep yourself focused? The emails must be a thousand miles a minute. Just um, really good office, work with really good people. Um, like being a producer, I mean, like, like, like a good producer, it's like, in everything, it's like you hire really good people that can do your job as good or better than you can. So um, really smart, good people in my life. Um, my partner is um, brilliant, um, and he's very easy to work with, and we kind of both like, you know, split our tasks. So we even try not to be in the same meeting at the same time most of the time now. And um, just um, try to, you know, just multitask well. Tell, tell us a little bit about David. You know, he's obviously a prolific writer now. He's getting into yeah. producing. He probably impresses you every day. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about him. He's a, um, I mean, like, he's been in the business for 20-something years. He's created multiple franchises from Blade to the Christopher Nolan Batman to Superman to, you know, a couple big ones in the future that we're working on now. He's just, um, I think his success is really, and, I, and I, he's incredibly talented, but I think his success is that he kind of takes his job, even though it's, as a writer, like an athlete in training, that he is reading every article, he's watching every movie, he's staying up on current events, so it's almost like he's like working out his brain constantly, and I think that's why his success has stayed so long, that discipline, and, um, and I think like, you know, he has so many references that there's not writer's block because he could just kind of like out-reference himself from any situation. That just takes like experience and um, 
sold his first script at 21 years old, and he's been a screener for 20, some, 20 almost 30 years. So he's, um, and I think, you know, for him, it's like he's been there, been, been treated like shit, been treated well, been hot, been called, had, and I think he kind of like um, knows who he is, and he's really excellent at like taking criticism and listening to people, and um, which is a great quality for somebody who's, you know, had tremendous successes and been in the business that long. And I think, I think, because of those qualities, is why he's still like at the height of his career. And do you do you meditate? I do. <laughs> I try to what, every morning. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the Social University. We are the Grad School for Life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.